0: Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and delighted to welcome each of you for today's topic about the different visa options that we're going to discuss. Along with me on the panel today, you have Joel Janovich, who's a Murthy Law Firm member and has been with the firm for about eight years, and Chris Drynen, a senior attorney at the Murthy Law Firm, who's been at the firm, what, around 10 years at this point? Uh, or nine years. Nine years, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's great to have all of you, as I said. Most of us, when we talk about visa options, most people assume that there's the H-1B, or maybe the L-1 for intra-company transferies, but we don't get into possible other options for you to consider for your either for your employees who are from either specific countries or you know in other cases whether it's bringing somebody over for a musical concert or what have you as a as a business owner or in your you know weekends and nights through your social cultural uh, organizations like the temple or other organizations temples, churches, et cetera. And so we're really like not going to obviously get into the depth of it, so it's going to be, as Joel says, a mile wide and an inch deep. So let's start off first with uh, maybe the TN visa, because it's one of those treaty-based, it's meant for US or, I guess, for Canadian uh, and Mexican citizens. Um, and so you have to be a you know, citizen of the qualifying country. But you as a technology company, as an employer, is allowed to bring your person an employee into the country if that person is a Canadian citizen uh, on the TN visa. And so, Joel, will you explain that a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, so the TN visa, again, it's uh, through the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Um, it's a it's a visa category only available. Well,
0: NAFTA, I thought Trump changed it. It's no n- longer NAFTA.
1: No, it's still NAFTA for now. They haven't. I don't think it's been ratified by by Congress. It has to go through Congress. First. Yeah. So for now, it's still NAFTA. If this new one goes through, um, I believe the, the it looks like the it, like basically nothing's going to change. Um, it appears. But regardless, uh, for now at least, uh, the TN category is only available for Canadians and Mexican citizens. Doesn't mean you have to have been born there. So if you were born in India, you're an Indian citizen, and then you become a citizen of Canada, you still can use it. Does not apply to residents, though. If you're a permanent resident of Canada or Mexico, that's not that doesn't qualify you. Um, It's available for professional workers who are going to be coming to the U.S. to work in any one of a uh, list of specified professional categories. It's a very long list, uh, but some of the notable ones, accountants, doctors, all manner of scientists. You have uh, hotel managers, computer system analysts, uh, engineers, including software engineers, it's so a, a
0: hotel manager, which is almost impossible maybe to get an H-1B approved, in especially in today's climate of the Trump administration, if the person happens to have citizenship with Canada, this is a wonderful option for the employer to consider. Similarly, similar to, I guess, some of the computer systems analysts, et cetera, which they keep saying is not a specialty occupation.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um and then, m- generally speaking, you need to have a qualifying degree, so a, a degree in that f- uh, exact field. Uh, you can't meet the requirements just by experience or a combination of education experience. Um, Chris, you want to talk a little bit about the exceptions to it's that? The exactly.
0: management consultant.
2: Yeah. I mean, the one, the probably the most notable exception to that is is the position of management consultant. Um, you can qualify for a for a management consultant TN if you have a degree or if you have at least five years of relevant experience. Now, that said, um, immigrant, uh, government officials, uh, particularly CBP, who are normally adjudicating these, they tend to look at these very, very closely uh, if you're applying as a management consultant. Um, and there are some, some very specific requirements here. Uh, this has to be a temporary position. Uh, You cannot use this sort of TN application as a management consultant to fill an existing position, uh, to replace someone in an existing position, or to fill a newly created permanent position. Um, Now generally, you can file a petition for a TN with USCIS. That's not the normal way that you would typically do this, at least for Canadians. Uh, Canadians normally file their application for a TN visa directly at the port of entry because they're visa exempt. Um, If you're a Mexican, uh, the application normally is going to be filed directly at the U.S. Embassy or Consulate, uh, generally in Mexico. Now, you cannot be self-employed on a TN, um, but you can be sponsored by a Canadian company to work for a U.S. company. Now, in that situation, um, the sponsored worker may be an owner or, or a partial owner of the Canadian company, and that's that's not a bar on, on doing this. Um, typically, TN status is granted in three-year increments, and you can keep extending it indefinitely as long as you continue to work in the qualifying position. Um, And your dependents, if you come in on TN, uh, wife and and children under 21 years of age. Or
0: husband and children.
2: uh, Wife or husband, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I stand corrected, Chilla. Can be admitted in TD status, um, but generally are not allowed to work.
0: Okay, thank you, Chris. So, as we said, that's for the TN. Now let's get to the other visa category, which requires... The treaty trade similar treaty, but like a treaty of friendship, trade and commerce. The E one, E two. Joel, you can st- just sort of give us a quick overview. Sure.
1: The E one category and the E two category. This E one is for treaty trader. E two is for treaty investor. It allows a qualifying foreign national to come to the U.S. either to carry on substantial international trade that's mainly between the U.S. and the treaty country um, or to develop and direct the operations of a company that the alien has made a substantial investment in. Um, it could also be used for qualifying employees. So if the if the uh, otherwise the, the, the company um, qualifies, uh, you could have supervisory, executive or essential skills employees coming to work for an E1 or E2 company. Um, you'll you'll oftentimes see these classifications for very well-established large corporations, um, but they're also used for small companies, uh, startup companies, even especially the E2 category for investments. Um, unlike most other non-immigrant categories, however, the E1 and E2 are not available to all foreign nationals. So, kind of like NAFTA is is limited to Canadians and Mexicans, E1 and E2 is a lot broader, but it's it's they are based on treaties. So. Um, there are a huge uh, list of countries that have qualifying either E1 or E2, or most of them have both E1 and E2 treaties with the US. Uh, everything from Japan to Australia, uh, almost all of the European Union. And then you have some kind of less obvious nations like Iran and Pakistan, even Taiwan. They all have treaties with the US, believe it or not, for this qualifying visa. Unfortunately, India and China, neither country has a qualifying E-1 or E-2 treaty with the U.S., Um, so uh, that's going to kind of put that out of contention for some people. Um, I don't know, Steele, you want to talk a little bit more about the the E-1? Yeah,
0: thank you, Joel. So, you know, as, as Joel just referred to it, the E-1 category is reserved for a treaty trader and to qualify this person... On the E-1, the treaty trader must engage in what's called substantial trade between the treaty country and the United States. And how do you do that? We do that by setting up this company, as we said, here in the United States, which is owned by the person of that particular country, a citizen of that country. So now when there's trade going on between that country's citizen here in the U.S. and the U.S., that's considered the, the qualifying trade. And now the word substantial itself Is not been defined, has not been sort of clearly defined, but there have been guidelines provided. Generally, it must be an amount of trade sufficient to ensure a continuous flow of international trade between the U.S. and the treaty country. And it generally cannot be based on one single transaction because it must be a continuous flow of trade. Now, sometimes if there's like huge equipment, huge machinery costing millions and millions of dollars, you know, even though they say the volume of exchange is the primary focus, but also the monetary value is important and greater rate, obviously, this according to the 9 fam Foreign Affairs Manual, is should be accorded to a case involving numerous transactions of larger value. And more than half of the total amount of international trade conducted by the business must be between the United States and that treaty country. Uh, The person applying for the E-1 can be either coming to carry on the substantial trade between the U.S. and the treaty uh, country, or the person can be coming as a key employee of the company, such as an executive, a supervisor, or as an employee with essential skills. Just so you know, one more thing that we that we've sort of thing is some sometimes we've seen like people opening gas stations with that country and it could work. So people say, well, what use is it? This is sounding like so difficult to understand. It could be applicable in certain cases if the particular employee you're trying to bring, but it's usually for companies that have that where the person individual invests in the company. So maybe less applicable to many of you on the conference call today, but it's still very important and valuable to be aware of it. So, Chris, what about the E2?
2: The E2 E2 visa category is reserved for treaty investors. Um, Now, to qualify, you have to make um, a substantial investment in the U.S. business. Now, substantial is not... Defined in the regulations or in the or in the law, um, but basically, substantial means it has to be substantial, and proportionally related to the amount uh, that's involved in either purchasing an existing business or creating the business that's under construction, under consideration. Um, so, if we're talking, let's for example, let's talk about a consulting business where the only expense might be office space, uh, relatively small small investment of capital at the beginning, versus uh, starting a, a factory here, which would have a large capital requirement to start up. Um, substantial is going to depend on which, which of those ends of the scale we're, we're tilting towards. Um, if you're opening a factory, you're going to have to invest a lot more to qualify for an E2, whereas if you're, if you're starting a business that has a lo- relatively low capital investment to start, it's going to be a smaller initial investment that's going to be required. Um, now, it also has to be uh, sufficient to ensure the treaty investor's uh, financial commitment to the, to the operation of the business. In other words, the, the person who is applying for the visa must have invested enough so that they essentially they care about it, um, so that they, they, they have a, a stake in whether this business succeeds or not. Um, and it also has to be enough um, to support the likelihood that the, the business can be su- successfully developed and directed. Uh, enough to to make it likely that the business has a good chance of succeeding. Now, the person who's applying for an E2 can either be the actual investor uh, coming to develop and direct the the new business, or, or like the E1, it can be an executive or supervisor or someone with essential skills for the business. Um, now, if you're coming to carry on a substantial, uh, well, you can come. Uh, For both, as we said, for both E1 and E2, uh, the company sponsoring the E1 or E2 worker must be at least 50% owned by nationals of the treaty company. And the person who's applying for the visa must be a citizen of the same treaty country.
0: Yeah, national
2: of the treaty country. Now, E1 and E2 visas uh, both are typically issued for up to five years, and the foreign national will normally be admitted for up to two years at a time, there's no maximum number of times the E1 or E2 visa or status can be extended. And the spouse and children of the principal E1 or E2 applicant uh, can be admitted as E1 or E2 dependents. And dependent spouses, in this case, are eligible to apply for employment authorization cards. So they have they would have an unrestricted right to work.
0: Well, that sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing from everything we've heard that, these they're not going to be... They're not on the chopping block like the H4EV. It ED, doesn't appear so, so no. <laughs> so at least for now, till something, God knows, could change. So we've talked a little bit about the TN, the Trade NAFTA for Mexicans, Canadians. We've talked about the Treaty Trader, Treaty Investors, E1, E2. So now let's move on to the P, visa classification applicable for artists, for athletes and entertainers. So we have the P1, P2, and P3. So the P1 is reserved for internationally recognized athletes coming to the U.S., either individually or as a member of a team or a group. To perform at a specific athletic performance, which, by the way, it does require international recognition, but it doesn't have to be in a professional league because amateur leagues, for example, are allowed, are fine. And an athlete, and similarly, similar to athletes, the entertainers who are coming to the US to provide an integral and essential part of a performance as part of the entertainment group with which they have been affiliated for at least one year because 75% of the group should have been affiliated at least for a year, and which is recognized internationally as outstanding. No individual recognition is required in these cases. So that's for the P1. The P2 category is for artists and entertainers who are coming to the US either individually or as a group to perform in a reciprocal exchange program, between one or more U.S. and foreign counterpart organizations. It's obviously less used because of the limited eligibility criteria and requiring the reciprocal exchange program between that country and the United States. And then, of course, we have the P3, which is for a culturally unique kind of program. And I've seen where, um, for example, the Multi Law Firm has done cases for Carnatic music performers, classical carnatic music for kathakali dancers for reggae musicians i mean a whole bunch slew of things very very interesting exciting and for you all as business owners on this conference call today it's something that you might life is not all about work it's also about you know entertainment and appreciating the arts and talent and so it's an opportunity to bring in so that there's a cultural exchange f- program that exists by bringing in internationally renowned artists and programmers. So, uh, Joel, if I can have you explain a little more on the P3?
1: Sure. So the P3 is, um, is available for individuals or groups. Um, as you as you indicated, it's for culturally unique artists and entertainers. Um, culturally unique is defined as a style of artistic expression, methodology, or medium, which is unique to a particular country or a nation or society, class, ethnicity, religion, tribe, etc. cetera. Um, and it can also be kind of a quasi where you're you're taking a culturally unique idea and maybe combining it with modern dance. Let's say um, we we've seen that with like a classical Indian dance style that's combined that's combined with modern dance that's still permitted as well. Um, P three activities can be commercial or non-commercial in nature. Um, oftentimes you you have the petitioner is the employer, but sometimes it can also be a sponsoring organization that's just bringing them here, not as the the petitioner. Um, the beneficiary um, the, is the employer or the entertainer, and even if it is a performance group, um, all the entertainers within the group need to be listed as individual beneficiaries using uh, the I-129 supplement, where you're, you're going to list the attachment. They're going to list all of the the individuals who are applying within that same one petition. Um, the beneficiaries don't have to be performers. They can also be teachers or coaches who are coming to the U.S. to impart knowledge on the culturally unique form of artistic artistic expression. Um, and there are also companion classifications. It's for the P3S for essential support personnel. <clears throat> um the purpose of admission needs to be limited. Uh, can be limited to a specific competition event or performance. An event can also include an entire season of performances, so that can be permitted. Um, or a group of related activities can be applied for. You'll you'll see that pretty often. Um, and then, kind of real quickly, going over the periods of admission for all the P categories. You've got the P one for individual athletes are admitted up to five years. Um, P uh, the P two uh, and for the P3, um, they're generally admitted just to finish the event, but no more than up to uh, up to no more than one year. So it could be an event that lasts for months. Um, there are extensions for P- available for P1 individual athletes in five-year increments, up to ten years of a maximum stay, and then extensions for all the others, which is to complete the event in one-year increments. Um, grace periods up to ten days before and ten days after, um, during which time they're, they're not supposed to be actually performing. Um, finally consultations uh, whether the alien you need to you generally need to provide consultations showing whether the alien skills are culturally unique whether the events are cultural in nature and whether the events are appropriate for the P3 classification and for the P1, you need to have evidence of the alien or group's ability and achievements in the field or of endeavor, whether the alien or group is internationally recognized and whether the services to be performed or appropriate uh, for the requested classification.
0: So I know Joel mentioned the word alien multiple times, and I know we try to be t- politically correct by saying foreign national <laughs> most of the time. So just want to be clear that it's the, the use of that term is because it's in the actual statutes and regulations, so sometimes we slip into the technical mumbo-jumbo. Also, I think one of the things that the Trump administration people have looked at is allowing, for the first time, organizations to actually provide consultations why they think something is not eligible and should not be, so negative consultations are strongly encouraged after the Buy American, Hire American executive order, any which way to try and squish anything that is international global different unique or special so that's the p1 p2 p3 so let's move on to the o1 o1a and o1b which is a classification for individuals of extraordinary ability or achievement many of you may have done that for certain key people some many companies hospitals for example do that with the doctors it's usually the o1a for doctors who have certain publications and certain awards etc But the O1A is the non-immigrant category reserved for a person, an individual, with an extraordinary ability in the sciences, education, business, or athletics. And it doesn't include arts, motion pictures, or television. For that, you have the O1B, which is for an individual in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or the television industry. Now, what is extraordinary ability? It's uh, in in these fields that I just went over, science, education, business, or athletics, which means a level of expertise indicating that the person is one of the small percentage who has risen to the very top of the field of endeavor. It's very similar to what we do with the EB1A for the green card application, but it's a slightly lower standard because it's short term as opposed to permanent but the legal criteria is supposed to be very similar. Extraordinary ability in the fields of art means distinction. Distinction means a high level of achievement in the field of the arts, evidenced by a degree of skill and recognition substantially above that ordinarily encountered to the extent that a person described as prominent is renowned, leading, or well-known in the field of arts. What about O2? Mm-hmm. Yeah. O2, uh,
2: people who who are eligible for the O2 classification are those who will accompany the O1 to provide assistance that is uh, an integral part uh, of an O1A's specific event or performance or is essential to the O1B's production. Um, Now the O2 classification is limited to foreign nationals uh, who will accompany an O1 uh, O1 principal uh, in the field of arts or athletics. So, if you're, for example, let's talk about an O-1 who is coming in the field of athletics. This could be a coach or someone else who's, who's necessary for their, for their performance here in the U.S. Um, now, typically an O-1 petition has to be accompanied by a written advisory opinion, uh, which also is called a consultation, from a peer group or a labor organization or a labor union in the U.S. unless you have a situation where such a group does not exist. Um, now if such a group does not exist, um, USCS will make the decision based solely on the evidence in, on, in the record. Um, now if you get such a, if you have such a written opinion and it was provided in the last two years and you're applying for an extension, typically you can request a waiver of this requirement. Uh, and provide a copy copy of the previously issued letter. Um, But but this is normally a requirement. You have to get an advisory opinion from a relevant group in the U.S. basically stating that they do not, that group does not have an objection to issuing the O-1 visa to the person who's applying. Um, Now an an O-1 classification can be based on a single event or it can be based on multiple offers of employment. So you could have a situation where the sponsor is an actual employer or you could also have a situation where the sponsor is an agent, which would typically be the case if we're talking about someone who's a musician or has a, is coming to the U.S. To, to engage in a tour of some type. Typically, the sponsor, in that case, would be an agent. Um, now, the approval of the initial O-1 petition can be up to three years. And you c- after that, you can get extensions in one-year increments uh, for an unlimited duration.
0: Okay. So now moving on to the J-1 exchange visitor category. Um, just by way of background, I know many of you are aware, you might have seen J-1, professors, teachers, uh, etc., but it actually, believe it or not, started, was developed to implement the Mutual Educational and Cultural Exchange Act, also sometimes referred to as the Fulbright-Hays Act of 1961. It's almost 60 years old. And it consists of several principal parties, the J-1 Exchange Visitor Program. First, you have the U.S. Department of State, which actually will issue the J-1 visa to an exchange visitor and dependents, family members. Um, And they will also designate the exchange visitor program sponsor, and they create and administer the federal regulations governing the exchange visitor program. Second, we have the exchange visitor program sponsors, which are then the legal entities that have applied for and received designation from the Department of State to conduct an exchange visitor program and they have been enrolled in SEVIS. So many universities are already in that. And you have even organizations like the American Immigration Council that has their own like, you know, is of so the exchange visitor program sponsor either directly offers the program in which the exchange visitor will participate or they help to place the exchange visitor in an appropriate program depending on the scope of the program designation. And the ROs are the responsible officers, and AROs are alternate responsible officers, are individuals who have been appointed by an Exchange Visitor Program sponsor to perform the duties set forth in the regulations and to represent the Exchange Visitor Program sponsor. And of course, then you have the Exchange Visitors themselves, who are the foreign nationals, who have been selected by an Exchange Visitor Program sponsor, to participate in the particular exchange visitor program. And you have, of course, like we said, the CVIS database and CVIS help desk. And then you have the Department of Homeland Security, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Student and Exchange Visitor Programs SEVP, which manages the CVIS, admits the foreign national to the United States in J status, and basically adjudicates certain immigration benefits for J exchange visitors and the dependents. So you have several different categories for J-1. Many of you have, as I said, heard of the J-1 research scholar. You've heard of the J-1 students, the J-1 trainees working many of the uh, the like r- entertainment industry, hotels, five-star hotels, interns, J-1 teachers, the au pair. So people who have little kids often work with au pair agencies to bring a p- person to take care of their kids and study. And it's of the international exchange program, you have camp counselors, you have government visitors coming in, summer work and travel, and international visitors, and finally physicians, many physicians who are not eligible or who the employer is not willing to sponsor in an H-1B have no option but to come on the J-1 as a physician and then be subject to the two-year hes- residency requirement. So with that, I'll have Joel explain a little mo- more about some of these programs.
1: Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about th- the trainee and intern program, J-1 trainee and J-1 intern programs in particular. Um, these are used for, you know, a variety of different reasons. Um, they are not intended to be a, a substitute for a work visa or a student visa. Um, And I'll I'll go a little bit into that. But basically, if the U.S. company has a bona fide training or internship program that is aimed at providing professional or cultural training, it can host a foreign national trainee or intern in one of the seven specified fields. Um, Those fields include information, media, and technology, management, business, commerce, and finance. Science, engineering, architecture, mathematics, and industrial occupations—the um, list goes on. There's tourism, there's cultural and arts, law, uh, etc. Um, the proposed training programs, as I mentioned, they can be approved if it—they it, cannot be approved if it indicates that the pro—that the either the trainee or the intern is going to generally be performing ordinary employment. So you can have some limited employment, short periods of on-the-job training, but again, it, it can't be that you're bringing them here really to work. Um, and then a couple of things specific. First off, to the J-1 trainee requirements, uh, the maximum length of stay for the J-1 trainee is going to be 18 months. The prospective trainee needs to show that they have a degree or certificate from abroad with at least one year experience related to the proposed training and then, once that 18 months training period is over, they need to go back to their home country and reside in their home country for at least two years before they can participate in another uh, J1 trainee program. And then, specific to the J1 intern, um, the maximum length of stay for the J1 intern program is 12 months. Prospective intern needs to show that they currently are enrolled in a degree or certificate program at a foreign postgraduate academic institution or that they graduated from such an institution no more than 12 months prior to the start of the J-1 program, the J-1 intern program. Uh, The intern can participate in a new internship program as long as they continue to meet all the other requirements. And then finally, if the intern seeks to participate in a training program as a J-1 trainee in the future, they need to reside outside of the U.S. for at least two years. before. But they if get they up. don't
0: decide to do, participate in a training program but pursue, wants to pursue education, say a master's degree in the U.S. or work or or whatever, is that permissible? Do you know? Does anybody know for sure what the rule is? Um, I think there's a little bit of uh, it should be allowed because it's generally rec- it says that it's the rule is generally that it's re- if it's required. If the person's coming back to participate in another training program, then they have to reside outside mm-hmm. for two years. But so I think the general rule is of the person because it's 12 months as opposed to the mm-hmm. 18 months, whereas in like the phys- the doctor or the J1 trainee with the 18 months, the person has to go back once the 18-month program is completed. They have to go back at least two years outside of the United States to participate in any other program, whereas here it's only if they're continuing with the tr- internship mm-hmm. that they need to do that. And that's that. one thing
2: about the J-1 classification. If certain people are going to be subject to the two-year, we call it the home residence requirement, which can be based on getting getting funding for your program from the home country, from your home country, getting funding from the U.S. government. Or if you're, you are working in, a certain, in certain fields, um, which are considered to be in uh, shortage occupations in your home country, you can also be subject to the home residence requirement. So that varies country to country. And that's one thing I certainly remember if you're, if you're thinking of the J-1. Uh, that can definitely be an issue is the two-year home residence requirement, which can prevent you from getting an H-1 visa, getting an L-1, or getting a, a permanent residence in the U.S. until you've fulfilled that or gotten a waiver.
0: I think I was even thinking about, because when, when Joel explained that the fields can include information media, information technology, you know, science, engineering, mathematics, et cetera, whether a company or an employer that's dealing with, instead of doing like the F whether the student is here in the United States on the F1 CPT or the F1 OPT, whether the individual could potentially maybe come in on as a J1 intern. Because the person is enrolled in a degree or certificate program at a foreign postgraduate academic institution or graduated from such an institution within no more than twelve months prior to the start of the j1 program. Sure, so it's interesting. yeah, they're
1: not going to have the same lug driven uh, the, the same flexibility of being able to work though. Um, so if the company's bringing them in and it's they're gonna be doing a little hands-on, but the government is, um,
0: it's basically what Trump is saying about this uh, three year, the two year extension on the STEM OPT, that you need to actually be in these people need to be getting training. That's mm-hmm. the whole purpose of the STEM. And it's that's why they're trying to deny many of these mm-hmm. or say that mm-hmm. they're out of status if they don't have somebody on site mentoring and training them. Um, I think it's an angle that many companies and businesses may not have explored fully. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity and an option. Now, of course, the individual needs to know that there could be restrictions about the two-year home residency mm-hmm. requirement that could be applicable in certain cases, mm-hmm. though it shouldn't apply if the person then decides to pursue another master's degree in the U.S. or then then after that works on an H-1B, right. hopefully. Okay, so we have a lot of e- exciting options to go through. And as the moderator... I think we're kind of coming to the last one, which is the R1 religious worker. And you might think, well, I don't need religion. I'm p- spiritually very elevated and I'm doing just fine and dandy. But it's a fantastic option for you all if you're on the boards or wanting to bring in priests or ministers or religious people, whether it's for a Hindu temple, a Christian church, a Buddhist you know, monk. Mm-hmm. Uh, For Buddhist monks or or the imams uh, for in the Islamic faith because it can be used uh, by ministers and religious workers For the for ministers the person must be authorized and trained to conduct religious worship and perform um, Other duties usually performed by clergy of that religious order for a religious worker The person must be a member of the religion for at least the past two years, and many don't fit this criteria and end up getting denials, must be coming to perform a religious Mm -hmm. job in either a professional or a non-professional capacity. The work must be primarily related to traditional religious functions. For example, R1 cannot be used for a person who is primarily performing administrative or support functions, such as clerical employees or fundraisers. And you must be performing the work in support of the religious organization, which is not the same thing as being a religious worker. For instance, a person who provides technical support for a church or a temple's online presence generally would not be considered to be a religious worker. And again, you can't be coming in using the R1 solely for religious study or training, because if you're studying, then usually you would come in on the F1 Type of visa, you. Uh, um, there are other many other restrictions, Chris. And
2: the R one has to be sponsored by a nonprofit religious organization in the U S. Typically, this would be an organization that's registered under the Internal Revenue Code as a five hundred one c three organization. Um, now, the first time a particular religious organization files an R one petition for a for a worker, um, USCIS will normally not approve the case until the uh, until uh, FDNS, the Fraud Detection and National Security Directorate of USCIS, performs a site visit. Um, so they'll actually come to your premises where, where this person is going to be work working and they'll actually make sure that there's an actual place for them to work. Um, so if you're filing an R1 for the first time, this really, really increases the processing times because you actually have to wait for a USCIS officer to come out and, and see where this person is going to be working and make, make sure this is a legitimate uh, legitimate occupation. They never
0: had this till they realized there was so much fraud and abuse that they set it up.
2: There used to be an enormous amount of fraud in this classification uh, for many years. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's why this resulted. Um, now you cannot use premium processing. Um, for an R1 petition unless the site visit has already occurred. Um, now, R1 status is available for up to five years and you basically, your five years would reset much like, a, much like the six years for an H1B classification if you're outside the U.S. physically for one year. Um, now, for spouses and children of R1 workers, they can get R2 classification. Um, one thing to remember about R1, there is a an immigrant uh, variety of of for religious workers that can actually lead to permanent residence. There are some more. Uh, there are some slightly different requirements, but that's a possibility. Someone who's working here in R-1 might eventually have the opportunity to actually apply for the green card based on being a religious worker.
0: Okay, thank you, Chris. So as you can see, between Joel, Chris, and myself, we've really tried to touch upon some of the more commonly used and interesting non-immigrant visa categories for you to consider uh, as an employer uh, to bring in people. So you could take advantage of some of the options to bring in employees uh, to profit your business, like we talked about with the TN, um, Visa for Canadian or Mexican citizens, or to bring in artists or entertainers or your priest uh, in the religious category to entertain you mentally and to spiritually, hopefully, elevate you. Um, as usual, the multi Law Firm can certainly help you uh, and your you know, temple or whatever nonprofit organization if you're bringing athletes and entertainers uh, for you to consider these options because we've done many of these petitions successfully over the last 25 years that the multi Law Firm has been in business. Uh, it, is our, it is our 25th anniversary, by the way, this year in 2019. Started in 2004. So on behalf of Joel Janovich, Chris Drynen, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we thank you for joining us today. We hope you have learned a little bit and think of these options, and we look forward to continuing to take fantastic care of you. And good luck as you figure out all of this, and have a great afternoon. Thank you.